Welcome to Streaming Thoughts, where we stream our thoughts on movies, TV, and all things nerdy. I am Daniel. And I am Nathan. And welcome to our podcast. So, Nathan, what are we talking about today? Oh, well, did you hear that with New Zealand functionally being one of the more successful stories in the global pandemic, Avatar 2 has picked up shooting again? Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that Avatar is being shot in New Zealand. Okay, so with the first Avatar, they were really pushing the use of the 3D technology. This one, for their push for advancing filmography... They are doing a new underwater motion capture system. Literally underwater? Literally underwater motion capture. Huh. There's not a whole lot of details out of it, but it's supposed to be this like revolutionary new way of doing motion capture that allows them to do it underwater. Wait, so who's the motion capture studio for Avatar? Do you know? I don't know, but I mean, I imagine it's probably so they can film the not be and get some underwater shots with them but still it's it sounds pretty exciting that's super interesting i didn't know that they were going to do something like that and i'm looking forward to see what that final product is going to be other news henry cavill has reportedly signed a contract to reprise superman again yeah I thought that was really weird, which would kind of falls into that other big news that we both saw this week. See, and that's what I'm wondering about, because when that first came out, everyone was speculating about whether or not he was doing a new movie, even though he had said he was done playing Superman movies. But then other news came out where, you know, they were like, okay, the Snyder Cut doesn't exist. Okay, the Snyder Cut exists, but it's not finished enough to be shown. No, it doesn't exist at all. And now... Coming 2021, HBO Max, Justice League, the Snyder Cut is officially on its way. Yes. And then shortly after that news broke, it turned out that he's getting a $30 million budget for special effects and reshoots. Which is a lot. It's actually quite a bit of money. Just to make a fancy director's cut, basically. If you recall... Back on the Hidden Figures episode, that movie was 22 or $25 million or something <laughs> like that to make that whole entire movie. Right. So just to put things in perspective. Yeah, he's basically getting a movie budget to finish off and film a couple extra scenes. So what I was wondering is this news of the contract, is this just a contract to get him to reshoot some of Henry Cavill's scenes so he can uh, get rid of the bad mustache CGI? Oh, God, yeah. I think it's going to be super different. And yes, I think that this version will attempt to fix a lot of those issues that they run into in both trying to get actors to come back to do reshoots and also just the poor, horrendous CG. How they ended up in film was beyond me. Yeah. So some of that CG was just so bad. It was just... And the weird part was, is the rumor is... He couldn't shave it because of his role in Mission Impossible. But the Mission Impossible people were like, oh, he can shave it and we'll just add it back in with either makeup or CGI. And they're like, oh, no, no, he'll be fine. We we can CGI it off. It'll be better this way. Right. (laughs) And I have to imagine removing had to have been a more difficult task than adding. Yeah, I guess both of them present their own unique challenges, right? But I think definitely removing it would add very unique challenges in terms of simulating the the movement of the lips and all of that stuff, which is no easy task. No, absolutely not. And did you also hear Sony is in talks to develop a, quote, secret Spider-Man universe film? Well, I mean, if we're talking about the Spider-Verse, which was already introduced in... 
the Into the Spider-Verse film, then is it more secret than that? Is it something we have absolutely no idea of? There's two rumors coming out about it. One of which is that it is going to be a female-led movie. Oh, that sounds interesting. Are you familiar with S.J. Clarkson? No, I am not. She has primarily been a TV director with such credits under her name as Orange is the New Black and Jessica Jones. Oh, nice. So she did like two episodes of Jessica Jones. She did an episode of Orange is the New Black, three episodes of Dexter, an episode of House MD, two episodes of Heroes. So yeah, quite a few popular tv series that she's been a director on and the rumor is is that sony wants her to direct this secret project that they're working on nice that's gonna be exciting sony owns all of the spider-man characters and properties for film rights which is like 400 some characters out of those which ones do you think would be the most likely to be a female-led movie that Sony wants to work on. When you said female-led, my first thought was is going to be a Spider-Gwen. That's where my mind went. Actually, so here's the thing that gets me. is The general rumor is, is people are expecting a Madam Web movie, but some of the names that are being tossed around as potential lead actors in the secret project aren't that old, and Madam Web's always been kind of portrayed as an older elderly woman. I was thinking about the same thought as you, like, oh, maybe they want to do a Spider-Gwen. And I'm like, wait, Gwen Stacy is a Spider-Man character, so Sony owns that. And there's that period of time where they were giving Gwen Stacy, like, the superpowers of, like, all the other Marvel characters. So does that create a backdoor for Sony to make their own Deadpool movie <laughs> by making it a the Gwen version of Deadpool? Uh, what did they call it? Like, Gwenpool? Gwenpool? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was that. Is this, like, a backdoor way for them to make their own Deadpool movie with Gwenpool as the lead. And you know what, though? Here's the thing. I think that Sony has some really, really amazing ideas. They are able to produce some of the coolest things out there in terms of the Spider-Man universe. The problem with Sony is, is that how they execute those things are not always the best. I mean, <laughs> if you look at Venom, for example, Venom is such a great character. It's a very complex, multidimensional character. You could have written a really good movie for Venom that would have really done it justice. CJ monster fight in the dark. Right, exactly. Just like, oh, come on. It's just, again, the idea was great. I think it's just how it was executed. Like, okay, Venom is this black, oozy character. So why are you sh trying to CGI his fight in a really dark, low-lit scene? You're going to lose detail doing that. Absolutely. I like the idea of a Venom movie, but the execution is just doesn't seem like it's always that well thought out. Right. And that's why Into the Spider-Verse, for example, surprised me a bit because I was fully expecting it to kind of fall short because of the history of Sony with Spider-Man properties and how, again, great ideas, just not executed very well. But I was very surprised, pleasantly surprised, actually, to come out of Into the Spider-Verse with being really happy with that property. And I wonder if that's got more to do with the fact that this property was treated a little bit more like an indie film, kind of a side project or something like that. It kind of gave me that feel of, you guys do whatever you want. This is not going to be that big anyway. Yeah. 
and then they did whatever they wanted and if they produced something really great and Sony was like oh you guys did a really great thing and this was really popular and we won an Oscar and stuff like good job you guys all right let's listen to these guys let's take a step back and not try to control things so much I hope so it was the same problem with the Sam Raimi trilogy Sam Raimi wanted to do fourth Spider-Man movie but really couldn't because there was just too much executive control his making of the third one where they're like yeah. oh uh you gotta make sure Harry Osborn is back as the goblin oh and uh, don't forget you gotta get venom in there because we want to do venom and oh and if you're doing sandman make sure that it's tied back and he's somehow connected to peter parker because that's gonna be more real that way and like they kept piling all this stuff and it became this mess when he went to work on the fourth Spider-Man movie with Tobey Maguire in some various interviews, he's just like, yeah, I was getting the same overbearing control where they just wanted to throw everything in. Right. I'm just like, no, I'm, I'm done. I'm washing my hands. I'm stepping away from this. And you know, what's interesting with that, how driven some of those decisions are by toy sales. Yeah. You know, just this cram so much more characters because these are much more figures we can sell. Except that's kind of a weird thing because most of the royalties from the toy sales still ultimately go back to Marvel, though. You you're right. I guess it wouldn't necessarily work on the Sony properties. Yeah, you know, they get a little bit off the merchandising when it's tied to the movie, but not as much as what they would normally get for a property that they fully own and control. Yeah, that's true. But look, ultimately, what these studios need to realize is that taking risks pays off. Just go crazy and weird. <laughs> Seriously, it's really what happened with Guardians of the Galaxy, right? I mean, it was a risk that Marvel took because up until Guardians of the Galaxy, all of their space movies, such as Thor, were very very tamed. Yeah. They were not really weird comic booky style of movies until Guardians of the Galaxy came on. And it's because of that movie that we have to think that Thor Ragnarok was a thing in the first place. Oh, yeah. I mean, I didn't even know who the Guardians of the Galaxy actually. That was not a comic property I was familiar with before that. And I like went in and seen this movie. I'm like, wow, this is this is fun. This is just, it's not a groundbreaking sci-fi. It was just stupid fun. <laughs> it was just a great comic book movie through and through. Just embracing the weird of the world. Embracing the weird of the comics. Taking that risk with comic book movies is what studios need to learn. It's, you know, Marvel has nailed that formula really well. Absolutely. Sony just needs to take a little page of that. I'm hoping they are getting better at it, especially after the Andrew Garfield, where they're trying to cram in the Sinister Sticks. It seems like they're getting a page from that. Hopefully everything works out for the best for them and they just back off let the creatives be creative and see what we get from it absolutely so dan happy father's day by the way yeah except i'm not a father <laughs> but you are so i should be saying happy father's day to you we all have our own fathers that's true happy father's day to my dad out there and absolutely to my dad as well you know around here Every Father's Day, there's just kind of this tradition to do an antique car roadshow where they shut down all of the downtown area. They block off the streets and all these gorgeous antique cars show up that you can just walk around with your kids and look at these really nice cars. But, you know, I don't think they're going to do that this year because of the global pandemic. Yeah. That sucks. And I don't, I don't even know why that kind of became a tradition, but it just is. But, you know, I think I might miss it. He, can you think of any movie that could kind of recapture that classic car feel? And that is an excellent question, Nathan, because I happen to know just a movie, and that is Ford versus Ferrari. Starring Matt Damon and Christian Bale. Yes, directed by James Mangold, who directed Logan. Ford versus Ferrari, which dedicating to all the fathers for this podcast. I want to ask you... 
what was your most surprising actor and character portrayal? Was there anyone that really stood out to you in this movie? I think for me, the one who probably stood out the most was John Bernthal as Lee Iacocca. You mean Frank, Frank Castle? Castle? Yes. The reason for that is I haven't really seen much of John Bernthal aside from The Punisher. And there's been a few other things that he's been in, but I haven't really been exposed to his full range of acting. And so that's the actor that kind of stood out to me as like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's he's uh, he's got range. He's good. I agree with you. Even though I recognize him from that role, he did not come across as The Punisher at all to me. He came across as just any other boardroom executive doing boardroom executive things. Yeah, absolutely. He did a great job. The actor portrayal that I really loved was actually Christian Bale as Miles. Oh, yeah. Because I knew the movie prominently featured Matt Damon, Christian Bale. They were the lead actors. But even when Christian Bale was first introduced into this character, into this role, I didn't recognize him right away. He had just completely transformed his posture, his body language into this character that he disappeared into the role. Yes. And I know that in our last episode in Snowpiercer, we talked about how Tilda Swinton disappeared in, into her character mm-hmm. in that movie, right? And how Gary Oldman is another actor that can disappear into whatever role they, they get. Absolutely. And so, yeah, I mean, Christian Bale, talk about an actor that just really commits to that role. I was rather impressed and rather excited and enjoyed to see his portrayal in all of this because he kept me captivated like the way he talked and his full portrayal yes absolutely and can we talk about i want to talk about this i want to talk about the chemistry between damon and bale as actors in this movie because to me the relationship between carol shelby and ken miles portrayed in this film and the chemistry between damon and bale was just on point they really captured that feel of two guys who knew each other forever were best friends didn't always see eye to eye i mean shelby was always trying to bail out miles it just it felt real yes i mean What a great portrayal of the two in this film. Like you said, just that feel that you got, these two have known each other forever. And it's not very common to see good chemistry between actors to that degree where the actors sort of disappear into the characters and you really get that suspension of disbelief, right? Of you just lose yourself in this story for two and a half hours and these two actors really had a hand in that and carrying you through that. Yeah, there's actually one blink if you miss it moment. Part of this is probably director's direction on how to portray this scene that really kind of captures the friendship between these two is when they're fighting yes and i think i know exactly what you're going to point out but go ahead first off that is probably one of the most believable movie fights in comparison to a real world fight by the way yes i mean most movies they're highly choreographed highly structured to make it look like a cool fight this if you ever see a fight in real life this is really how the fights go down most of the time and i want to say something to that a little bit of fun fact i did see an interview with matt damon and christian bale both of whom have portrayed characters such as batman for christian bale and jason bourne for matt damon and they were asked about what was it like to have that kind of fight sequence if you want to call it that you know and they said that they had so much fun because it was just more just do whatever you want it was not very heavily rehearsed compared to what they usually would have had to do in like a Bourne movie or a Batman movie right and so they just said that they had so much fun filming that compared to any of their other more crazy athletic characters that they play so the moment in that fight that I really loved 
the detail of it was Shelby is being choked from behind by Miles and he's reaching around grabbing something to try to get him off of him. Picks up a tin can of beans or vegetables or something. He looks at it like he's about ready to smash Miles' face in with it, stops, drops it, and instead grabs a bag of bread. Like he's like, nope, that's going to do too much damage. I don't want to hurt my friend. (laughs) I know. And that was so great. It was so amazingly portrayed in that in that moment in that film and it was so much fun and it just gave you everything you needed to know about the relationship between these two men despite the fact that they get into their faces they were essentially brothers yeah you know and that was so greatly and amazingly portrayed in this movie and it was so much fun i also really enjoyed when miles wife saw them fighting her reaction was grab a fold-out chair and sit down and watch a <laughs> show it was really funny <laughs> That whole sequence was just great. Did Ford actually foobar a deal with Ferrari to buy them out in the 60s? That is an excellent question. And I should say, I actually saw a little documentary on Ken Miles a few years ago. So I was aware of this story. And when I saw that it was being adapted to film, I got really excited, especially when I saw, obviously, Matt Damon and Christian Bale attached to the role. So yes, that was completely and totally true. I know the guy, when he went back to Henry Ford to tell him that the deal fell through, he portrayed it as oh well they were never truly intending to sell to us but at the same time the way it was portrayed in the actual business meeting wasn't that he didn't have any intention to sell that he got insulted that he would no longer have first say over what Ferrari did as far as racing was concerned. Yeah, I mean, it was a bit twofold, right, in terms of the reasoning behind the rejection. Obviously, $18 million informed that that sort of strategy. It's not like he would ever go back and tell his boss, like, oh, yeah, I kind of messed up with it because I... I waved my ego around too much as being superior to him. So, like, you're not going to go back to your boss and say that was why it fell through. But that was kind of how it was portrayed, is that he was being all arrogant and cocky to say, oh, yeah, you know, in the rare circumstances we disagree, yeah, you would have to follow us. We will always be your boss. You'll always be subjugated to us. Especially when in a prior sequence, the head of Ferrari was told that he would retain 90% control of Ferrari Ford, the racing team. And then to say, wait, you're going to give me 90%, but if you say no, then I don't race, then that's not 90%. Right. And so that's why I was wondering, is like, was it really that issue? Like, if he had said, if you don't want me to race and I want to race, how does that work out? And he's like, oh, well, you own 90%, so you have the controlling vote there. Would that sale have gone through? Would we have been seeing Ford Ferraris driving down the American streets? In an alternate universe, there is a Ford Ferrari company out there, I'm sure. That whole thing was just really interesting. And it was absolutely a piece of car history. There was a time that the chance or the opportunity to have seen a Ford Ferrari... Was real. It was very real. So James Mangold... In my opinion, with all of the stuff that he's done that I've seen of him, one of the things that I can always count on is a good pacing. And especially for a movie like this, because it's a two and a half hour long movie. So this is not a short movie. So pacing is everything when it comes to long movies. Yeah, I wanted to bring that up because this movie was a lot longer than I expected it to be. On the tagline on what you know the movie's about and previous adaptations of true stories, I was expecting 90 minutes maybe two hours 
I put the kids to bed, sat down with my wife to go watch a movie. Yeah, we got everything, you know, drinks, all that stuff, nice and ready. And we started this movie. And all of a sudden, it was just getting really late. And I paused it. There's still an hour left of this movie. So I was surprised at the length of this movie. But the pacing on it, absolutely. It was just, you know, beat by beat. It just kept flowing. It, it didn't have any unnecessary scenes. It didn't have any time where you just wanted to move on. It was always just flowing in a just natural narrative. It was really great in terms of that. I mean, absolutely. I totally agree with you. And long movies really need that. You have to have really good pacing. If you don't have good pacing, then your long movie becomes a drag. And the last thing you want is just to feel like this is just dragging on. The editors were Michael McCuster and Andrew Buckland. So Good job to you guys for doing a great job with that editing piece. And did this movie get any accolades or nominations for awards? So this one, I believe, was nominated for Best Picture. It actually won an Oscar for Best Film Editing. It also won an Oscar for Sound Editing. It was nominated for Best Sound Mixing. So I do want to get to the sound of it. To help you segue over to the sound, there is a ridiculous complaint I had in this movie where Miles is driving the race car like 200 miles an hour down the track with his window open talking to other drivers while they are also driving 200 miles an hour down a track with their windows open. That ain't happening. (laughs) Yeah. You are not hearing what that person is saying to you. You are not communicating at that speed with your windows down. It's not happening. There's no way that sound's going to work. No. And going at that speed. You might be able to get away with it if you're going like maybe 10, 15 miles an hour, but not at anything higher than 30 or 40 miles an hour. Then it'd be pretty tough to have a conversation with someone at that speed. And you see it later on as they're developing the racing car for the Le Mans 24 hour, where the only opening for the windows was this little flappy doodle that they could punch open a little bit to allow some airflow to get through so the driver doesn't get too hot. Right. Racing cars typically weren't designed to roll down the windows because you create a drag point that you lose speed on. And when you're racing, I mean, any drag point you need to be eliminated. So I was like, why were they even driving with their windows down? I mean, later on, they did a whole scene where he lost a lot of time because he couldn't keep his door closed. Right. That whole scene was just ridiculous to me. And I was like, (laughs) That was a little over the top. And that's something that I would say about this movie is that the race sequences, while they're amazing, they still have a little bit of Hollywood magic in them, you know, just to make them a little bit more entertaining. So aside from that ridiculous example of sound that could never happen in real life, what did you want to say about the sound? What did you like about it? So in terms of the sound mixing, it was just so well, incredibly edited. I got a chance to see this in the Dolby Atmos Cinema at AMC. I remember walking away from it just thinking the way that the engine sounds and just everything about it all of that was just so really well done i mean there's so much detail in sound with the metal creaking and the rumbles and so much detail in there that really great and i really appreciate it okay so an example of the detail in the sound when shelby locked the executive into his office in order to get ford alone inside the racing car He was trying to make his huge racket to get Ford's attention to let him know that he's been locked in there. They were cutting away to like a halfway point into the scene where you could 
kind of hear Shelby talking to Ford, and you could hear the I, I don't remember the exact name. I apologize. Leo. Yeah. You, so you could hear Leo banging on the windows in the background, and they balanced that perfectly because a lot of times you see a movie and there's always that scene where like someone walks up and like and they respond to something that they quote heard and you're like there's no way you heard that right but in that moment because they took this halfway point and like balanced different audio levels just right that it actually felt like any second ford was going to hear that guy banging on that window yes right before the kid turned on the engine and started revving it louder to cover it up yes that attention to detail here is just amazing and so if you happen to have a pretty decent audio system for your home theater you're going to be pleasantly surprised especially if you have a 4k blu-ray the atmos mixing in this is just amazing and so it sounded really really great and also it added to the other effect that i wanted to talk about which is the feel of how dangerous and insane race cars were back then because when you compare it to today, there's so much safety built in into race cars today. Back then, it was like putting a giant engine into a cardboard <laughs> box and saying, drive this. By the way, that was kind of a digging at me for not having as good of a home theater system as you, weren't you? <laughs> no. You're always trying to get me to up my game. Maybe that will be my Father's Day present. You know, cross my fingers, I'll get a better theater system at home. <laughs> <laughs> the way they portray the danger of the racing, a little bit with the foreshadowing where they're they're showing his crash when his brakes failed testing the GT40. Yeah. A lot of times they're showing them going out and driving at these crazy speeds around airport runways and these large open fields and all this other stuff. And you get the sense of it's just a joyride. But then they also take the time to show you how dangerous it could actually be. And I did like that attention to detail. Absolutely. It's everything when it comes to these types of movies, right? Where they want to take you to a period of time when, you know, we were engineering and making these machines, either for racing or, for example, another movie that I can think of that does that also really, really well is First Man with regards to the space program. Yep. Which we, we are going to talk about that movie because that movie was amazing. So stay tuned. So yeah, I mean, it's super important to have this element of feeling like, no, this isn't, these aren't just really cool machines that you could die. I mean, and <laughs> a crash can be deadly. I mean, again, just think about, you know, modern race cars and how much technology goes into making sure that race car drivers walk out of these insane crashes just unscathed. Like I remember watching a crash in a rally car of this guy who just literally fell off the cliff and it rolled a bunch of times and then the, both of the drivers are like you're good yeah i'm good great you know walked out which if you had put that same crash in a car from the 1960s i'm pretty sure things would have not turned out the same now one thing that really stood out me and the special effects of this movie in that scene where his brakes first failed because he's riding it too hard he's getting going too fast he's going too hot the way that they chose to show the brakes failing to the audience and lighting up the wheels in that glowy red fire. Yeah. Was it just me? Or did you suddenly get a feel that this thing was about to engage the flux capacitor and go back in time <laughs> like the DeLorean? Right. I've never seen brakes fail because they got too hot. But if that happens, if anyone knows what that might actually look like, send us a picture to let us know. Yeah. 
Let us know on Facebook at Streaming Thoughts Podcast. And on Twitter at Streaming Geek. If you are a mechanic or if you know a little bit about racing and what burning brakes look like and whether or not that film portrayed it accurately or not. I'm really curious about that because when I'm watching this film the first time, I didn't know that that's what they were doing. Then all of a sudden, like, the wheels start glowing. I'm like, is he about to go back in time? He's going way faster than 88 <laughs> miles per hour. Oh, yeah. He's got the speed down. You know, that was a failure of Doc. You know, Doc should have been using a Ford GT40 instead of a DeLorean. Picked the wrong car. I think it gets to 88 miles an hour a lot faster. <laughs> Wouldn't have had those problems, right? Stylistic choices. Uh, I mean, the DeLorean just looks cool once you deck it out in a time machine. And piece of trivia for this movie is that to this day, the Ford GT40 is the only American car that has won Le Mans. Yeah. They won, what, five, six years in a running? It was three years afterwards. It was 67, 68, and 69. So yeah, once they did it, they maintained that top dog spot for a while, which I kind of want to go into the end of that race because it's kind of interesting. So they show the close-ups of the RPMs. The RPM wheels have that red zone where, like, as long as we stay under this we're safely running, but we can push it this high, but it's your red zone. This is where you're going to start having the danger of engine failure. Miles' car, that danger zone was 78,000 RPMs. The Ferrari was 9 and 10. No, 8 to 9,000. Yeah, so the Ferrari had the advantage there to you know, really outpace. And it was what it came down to in that moment was it, the, the driver was it being too aggressive in trying to maintain the Ferrari's superiority over the Shelby GT40. He could have maintained and continued on to the long haul to probably still finish fairly evenly and maybe push it at the very end to get that final win. And they showed all the testing to make sure that they could maintain that danger zone for as long as possible with the GT40. They just had more endurance for that neck and neck fighting than what the Ferrari did. So in that moment when he pushed it, his oil got too hot and he blew out the gasket and fell behind. You could feel that emotional excitement that Miles had of, holy crap, that actually just worked. We pulled this off. We beat the Ferrari's endurance. Which is crazy, especially considering that Ferrari at that time had continued to produce cars that win over and over and over because of their amazing, incredible engineering, build quality of their cars that was just known to have been of the utmost quality. That's why Lia Iacocca said Enzo Ferrari is going to go down in history as the world's greatest car manufacturer, not because he made the most cars, but because he makes cars that are just so amazingly over-engineered, I think is what he called it yeah it's incredibly over-engineered and so to see that and then to remember that part of it that's what makes it even more significant for ken miles to know that they were the david that was the moment that they took their shot and hit him between the eyes with a little pebble that caused goliath to fall exactly and it was just so really really greatly portrayed tying it back to the feel of things just how immense the le mans race really felt it wasn't just a small thing right i mean it was 24 hours like especially when ken for example talks to his son about that first lap and then he says and that's the first three and a half minutes of the next 24 hours and that just put things in perspective as far as how crazy it is and how insanely hard to run in these cars 
for that long. They had the backup driver so that Miles could rest and sleep for a little bit, right? So it's a team of drivers. Yeah, it's, a, it's a team of drivers. I mean, he's not driving the entire time for that 24 hours. He's just the lead driver, right? Yeah, he is the lead driver, yes. Which comes into the final results, the technicality of that race, because... At the very end, after he pushes the car and sets the best lap record of the Le Mans ever, you know, just breaking records and showing, yeah, I can push this car all day long and I'm going to set a record that no one's going to be able to beat for years. But then he chooses to be a team player, back off and slow down. And that is what came up as to the technicality of him not actually being accredited with the win. Because they all crossed at the same time, it was a tie, but the Le Mans rules... They don't issue ties. They said three cars came across. We have to say which car's first, which car's second, which car's third. And so the quote unquote tiebreaker was a different driver just happened to have been in the car personally for more miles than miles had been. It kind of gave me a little bit of that Rocky feel. Yeah. The first Rocky. He's going up against his Goliath. He was never going to win, but he wanted to go the distance in the end, he went the distance, and he still lost by the points earned and the judge ruling, but it was still a victory for him. And that was a really big character growth moment. The Miles, at the beginning of the movie, would have been going over there trying to pick a fist fight with the judges. This Miles at the end, he sees that and he puts his arm around Shelby and he's like, you know what, let them have their photograph. Let's go off and talk about how we can make this car even faster next year. Yeah, he's like, I won. I know I won. I don't get the trophy, but I know I won. And I think ultimately he also realized that that's not where he belonged. You know, he's not a guy who is on the spotlight, who does interviews and does all this kind of stuff. You know, he never really struck me as that kind of person that wants to be popular and famous. It was that realization, right? Like, yeah, you know what? I don't belong there. I belong in the track. I belong in in the shop making cars and making them faster. Moving further into the end, did they really have to make the end of this movie so incredibly depressing? I know. I was waiting for that, to be honest with you, because I was already aware of the ultimate fate of Ken Miles prior to watching this movie. So, you know, I was just waiting for that moment. And they did a little bit of this when they did eventually end the movie of, hey, let you know, here's some additional facts. Ken Miles was inducted into the Motorsports Hall of Fame at this year. These were the years that Shelby won. Shelby's the only one to ever win. You know, they're giving those little title card facts at the end. Right. Why didn't they just end it with him walking off into the sunset saying, you know, let's make the card lighter. Let's make it faster for next year. Fade to black. Give a title card that says Ken Miles died in a car crash in this year. Right. It would have left you on a high note but still let you know his ultimate fate. But instead, they chose to take you off this really emotionally high feeling. Like, you know, you're cheering for him. You're like, yeah, he did a great job. You know, you're still really in the moment. And then they go to show you just that little bit more and just like crash the emotional train down into the gutter of depressing, sad (laughs) moments. I'm just like, why? Why did you do this to us? 
it was a really interesting choice for sure for the filmmakers to follow that direction because ordinarily I would say that how you described it originally of just that fade of black and then you know Ken Miles died in a car crash and all that kind of stuff afterwards that seems like something I've seen many more times in in other films that are like this you know some sort of biopics right I more expected something like that to be honest with you I didn't expect for me to have seen that scene of the crash and so yeah I think it was a bolder choice to have gone in that direction to get you up real high and then just smack you right down in that fashion. Yeah. And it might work for some folks. For me personally, I think it worked. I think that it helped the film. But I can totally see how you're supposed to give me a, a nice smooth landing from that summit. From the high. You're, from the high, exactly. You're not supposed to just grab a sledgehammer and just hit <laughs> me in the head and then, you know, say, get back down. And keep in mind, I didn't actually know the fate of Ken Miles, so that was just doubly hard learning the fate. After going through this journey and learning the fate in that way, it was just like, oh my. I know. It's really tough. So the little documentary that I saw, I was about how Ken Miles was portrayed in this movie compared to what I remember watching from that documentary of just that a lot of people who work with Ken Miles in real life had oftentimes said that he just sort of had this really weird sixth sense about cars. Like he just knew that he could push it faster and harder. He knew just kind of had a feel of it. Like he was so in tune with the machines. And I think that that portrayal in the movie, how they managed to portray that was just, I think that was really great, especially from hearing from real life accounts of things that Ken Miles would pick up that other people would be like that's not the right part and he would say trust me that's the thing that's broken and then they would go and check and be like yeah you're right that was the thing that was broken <laughs> yeah and they really kind of portrayed his understanding of cars in the his first scene where he shows up where he's talking about the whole reason he kept having to tune up this guy's car because the guy wasn't driving the car to keep it in sync <laughs> with its own engine right Exactly. Because he was not driving the car like he was supposed to drive the car. He was saying, you're driving a sports car. Drive it like a sports car. Don't be shy on that. Rev it up to 5,000 RPM and then shift gears at that RPM. You are instead shifting gears at 2,000 RPM. That's not how the car works. But he just had that sense of it. How this car's and how this engines work. I also love that insult. It's like, are you saying I don't know how to drive my own car? <laughs> no. I'm just saying that's not your car. Your car is a Plymouth <laughs> station wagon. <laughs> that was that was fantastic. And that first scene just gave you so much information about who this character was. And immediately when I saw that, I was like, oh, I'm going to love this movie. This is going to be fun. He was a hothead, but it was a fun to go along with him. They directed it. He acted it. He portrayed it as you believe in his skills behind that wheel. Absolutely. And those whole racing sequences, by the way, in terms of the practical effects that were shown and the CG work, amazing. I, I'm usually very nitpicky about this kind of stuff, but I couldn't find anything about this CG sequences and race sequences that I thought, wow, that was just really, really terrible and horrible and ruined movies forever. You know, aside from obviously just the Hollywood feel to racing, right, which they were people who kind of were sort of breaking down the racing in this movie were like, that's not how cars work, but it looks fun. <laughs> I'm not a racing aficionado, but I know that they're going to do their Hollywood spin on it. It's, it's the same thing. You, you watch a movie about racing 
they're going to make it more exciting to people who aren't familiar with racing. You watch a movie about football. They're going to make the football games so much more exciting and action-packed. Soccer, for example, you see a soccer movie, it's like all these fast kicks and high action. You watch soccer in real life, it's you know, more or less a lot of passing the ball back and forth between people. Hollywood will always elevate and focus on the high-octane aspects of whatever sport they do. This is really no different. Does it not give a, quote, real feel to the racing? Probably. But it's certainly a lot fun to watch, even for people who aren't racing fans. Yeah. I mean, definitely, I think that they make it a a little bit more accessible for people. That's the whole point, right? Like, I want it to feel believable. That was one of the things that I didn't want to see in this film is for it to feel like I'm watching a Fast and the Furious movie. It wouldn't have worked if they went even more ridiculous like that, right? It has to have had a really good sense of grounding and realism. And I think that this movie captured that really well with just sprinkling uh, Hollywood powder into the realism just to make it a little bit more engaging and a little bit more entertaining. And I think that they really succeeded in that. Speaking of realism, do you think the Le Mans changed their rule book to say that you can't swap out the brakes in the middle of the race? I do have to wonder about that. And that is one of the things that I always forget <laughs> to look back up. I'm like, did they change that rule? That was kind of a game changer for them and certainly gave them a bit of an advantage. And you would want to say if they didn't change the rule, fast change brakes would have been like a normal thing you would see in racing today. Right. As far as I know, that's not a thing where you can just simply pop off the entire wheel and put on a new one brakes and tires and everything included. Yeah. Which also just speaks to the engineering of all of these other people that worked in it, right? Coming up with some really creative ways to fix the issues of why don't we just replace the entire braking system yeah, right? <laughs> instead of trying to put band-aids in it just, just just replace the whole thing i've changed my own brakes before that's not a fast thing <laughs> it's just so great to see that being represented so well and then also just illustrating just how experimental all this stuff was back then right and how people were encountering problems in racing that they never encountered before and they had to come up with some really interesting ways to solve those problems because this has never been a car that's been built before push the envelope push the technology that's that's what's going to drive us forward i always love films that really showcase those innovations, those times when we push beyond what was possible at the time. Absolutely. That gives you a sense of accomplishment because hopefully that continues to drive the new generations. You know, they see these films, they see how they pushed and exceeded beyond what was capable at the time. And hopefully that motivates the next generation of Shelby American auto parts that some kid watching this movie today might grow up and want to be just like Shelby because he saw this portrayal of Shelby in a film. Yeah. When it comes down to the how do we triumph by working together and how do we push the envelope and that whole representation of all of those elements really greatly portrayed in this movie. Yeah. Another cool fact that ties this movie to our previous episode in Snowpiercer. The music for this movie was done by Marco Beltrami, who also did the music for Snowpiercer. Nice. The music in this, it didn't ever stand out to me. It was a seamless blend into the thing. Yeah. It's something you notice like right away. You always notice these musical choices, these composer actions. Me, I'm just like, if I hear the music, 
if I think about the music, I actually think it's not done right. Really? I have the opposite way of looking at it. To me, if I'm thinking about the music, even after I've seen the movie, and it's just like keeps playing in my head, that's a testament to good job. Good job, composer. Short of watching a Disney movie where the music is front and center, if I'm stepping out of a movie and I'm thinking about the music, the music was a distraction. It pulled me out of the film. Interesting. It made me think more of the music and what's going on with the music than what was going on with the narrative with the story so like so that's always something that's different for me is like oh with, how was the music it's like it was really great because i didn't think about it it was always an enhancement never a distraction so when you get that i don't think about the music in the moment for sure by the way i do want to clarify when i say music i mean the score not songs that are played in the movie because those songs obviously i mean those can get very easily stuck in my head but for that i definitely agree with you if it's a choice of song yes you have to keep it way in the background because i don't want that to take front and center into the scene but when it comes to the score of this film or any other films like for example when i first watched the avengers the avengers theme song was stuck in my head it was just playing all the time yeah it's it was blaring it was in front of you and it's yeah and it was great, but it really enhanced the scene and it just got caught on. That's an example of what I mean. In the first Avengers movie, the Avengers theme was there. It was blaring. It was forefront. It was what you thought of in that moment. Right. And so for me, that in that first movie, that pulled you out of it. But then in the subsequent Avenger films, as each composer does a slightly different take on it, like in Endgame where they did the Avengers theme, but he cut out half of the instruments. Yes. Then... I don't think about it in the moment because it enhanced the scene for me because it got better at utilizing that Avengers theme than the first one where it was just loud blaring in front of your face. I will disagree with you. I love the fact that it was loud and blaring in my face <laughs> because that was just the perfect scene to hear that music come into as the Avengers were all getting together. Oh, yeah. So what works for one doesn't always work for the other. Yeah. <laughs> we can disagree on some of these things and still say that good movies are bad movies. It's always a fun ride. Oh, yeah. But I will say for this particular film, the score was just right in the middle of it. You know, it was just in the background. You didn't really hear it much. There wasn't a whole lot of that stuff because what was most important in this film was this engine sounds and the other bits of sound that you would hear that accompany all that whole raising bit that was what's important not the music and i appreciated the fact that the composer understood that and really went in that direction and just again the music served its purpose to enhance the scenes and never really overpower them yeah, i have to apologize you had to point out that you're referring to the score and not songs because i brought in the disney movies yeah <laughs> because i will say i mean with disney films is a whole different game it's a whole different game when you started to clarify that what you meant about music and the score i'm like oh geez did i just give the impression to somebody that this was a musical <laughs> <laughs> yes although i will say that if this story gets turned into a musical and a successful musical i would take off my hat to that team and say congratulations you've done something that no one asked for <laughs> first of all and wasn't needed but if you did it well good job good job all right should we jump into our tldl too long didn't listen yeah this is a section where we give you our closing thoughts on this movie so nathan what's your tldl it's a fun movie Great character performances, great character acting all around on multiple people's parts. It opens up with a humorous scene 
am I on fire? Then get me back on the road. <laughs> that sets the pace for the movie and it maintains it the whole ride through. Just do yourself a favor, turn it off 10 minutes early. <laughs> Uh, my thoughts on this one are really echoing a lot more of what you said. You know, it's, it is really a fun ride. The performances of Matt Damon and Christian Bale, the chemistry between those two is just really amazing to watch those two work together. And surprisingly, they actually had never worked together before. So this is their first time working together, which is crazy because, again, it felt like they've been working together for a really long time. Absolutely. And just you note, know, the race sequences are really great. Again, the sound mixing is just phenomenal if you have a great sound system you're gonna love this movie and overall just a fun ride and if you want to know what happens to ken miles then yes stay for those 10 minutes so dad before we depart i do have a final question or thought for you if you could have any 60s era ford which one would it be that is an interesting question and actually do have an answer for that if you want to know oh yeah yeah i do that'd be the first yeah this would actually be the first uh 1969 for shelby gt 500 <laughs> of course <laughs> But if you want to tell us what car you would have wanted out of that era, you can hit us up on Facebook at Streaming Thoughts Podcast and on Twitter at Streaming Geek. For this, I've been Nathan. And I've been Daniel. Thank Thank you for for listening. listening.